Thank you for joining us today in this very special interview episode. My name is Jamie Prater, and I'm here today to interview uh, author Ian Nathan. So we are here to talk today about Ridley Scott, A Retrospective, a new book that's just been released. It's, it's a bit of a coffee table book. Uh, my guest Ian Nathan is the author of that book, and I reached out to him a couple weeks ago, and I asked if he could be on the show uh, to discuss this book and it's the process of making it and the films he included. So thank you for so much for coming on. That's a pleasure. I'm glad to be here. Let's start out with a little bit of history. Like I've read your essentially your by own biography in terms of the books that you've you've worked on, and it's quite extensive. Yeah. Um, how does a book like this happen how does it materialize does someone, <laughs> does someone say hey you've done this we're thinking about another book about Ridley Scott or whatever would you be interested in this or was it something that you did uh, it's a little bit of both actually I mean, as you said I've, I've written books before and I have established relationships with, with various publishers and sort of once a year we get together and we talk about the next couple of years and what books we might want to do and what you know I really want to do and what they want to do and a little bit of normal commercial sense comes into it what might work who's kind of hot who's still making films who will want to buy a book about what subject all that comes into the debates uh, I have to sort of separate Ridley Scott a little bit because I used to work at a film magazine called Empire um, which is a very big film magazine in the oh, yes, UK no, well. I, was the, I was the editor of Empire and really the book began while I was there not in sort of physical terms I wasn't sort of writing it at that point but I was beginning my relationship with Ridley, um, as much as it, I have a relationship with Ridley, and I in, was interviewing him. I, more my sort of my own pressures, I became the kind of go-to guy to cover Alien and Blade Runner whenever it came up in, in, in the magazine. I kind of hogged that territory. And I suppose I, I was beginning to put together a, a book in my head, uh, you know, a book I would one day love to write. So it was always kind of there. Because, uh, you know, I, I can go right back to first seeing Blade Runner and being slightly confused. I was quite young, um, but being absolutely dazzled. And, and the word I would like to use and is it's haunted by it. I was kind of left and it never left me alone. And that sort of began my relationship with Ridley right back you know, when, I, when I was a kid. So it was kind of building up in my head. And once I was writing books and I left Empire to kind of go full time as a writer, as a, as a book writer, as an author, I really wanted to do Ridley. Now, other books sort of came and went. I read a book about Peter Jackson that took a lot of time. Um, I wrote a book about Quentin Tarantino, you know, various books that sort of obviously occupy your, 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 your time. So Ridley was kind of there and bubbling around. And then I, I sat down with my, my publishers and they said to me, well, what do you think about Ridley? We would like to do a book on Ridley. Um, we know you, he fits in what we do as a publisher. Um, I work for a, a publisher who sells the rights. They kind of construct the book and they sell the rights to other publishers around the world. So they have a kind of way of working through the market. That's a little bit, I don't really understand it, but they kind of, they go away and do that. So they kind of knew the names of directors that worked. They'd done a book on Martin Scorsese and they'd done a book on Quentin Tarantino. So they knew the types of directors who make good books. You know, it's a kind of mix of um, history and legacy which obviously Ridley has, and a certain kind of cult following. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily, they don't necessarily have to be the biggest directors. They need to have a certain kind of cult quality about them that people kind of collect them, if that makes sense. You know, like you guys, you know, they get obsessed with their work. That what kind of works as a, as a, as a, as a subject. So I just kind of jumped on it and went, you know, I've been waiting to do this book for about 10 years of my life. Awesome. 
you know, I've got all these notes. I have interviewed him 10 times, you know, from dating right back to probably around about 1999, 2000, somewhere around then, I, I think the first one is. And various points had a long time with him. And I said, I've got this material. You know, Ridley, is a, he's, a, he's a kind of interesting character in the sense he's very British. He's very Northern British. He's very stoic and doesn't like a lot of attention. Yeah, he's, he's good in interview, but he doesn't like the limelight. He loves to be on set directing or editing or creating films, but promoting them and talking about himself is not something he enjoys particularly. So he is resistant to the straight up idea of a biography. You know, he said, no, I don't want to be doing that. I, I, you know. But he blessed it from afar. In the sense I had all this material and you know, he was going to help get you know, picture clearance wasn't going to be a problem and he wasn't going to stand in the book's way, but it wasn't going to be a case of the official Ridley Scott biography. Totally. And this, yeah, in a sense, it was never intended to be that, as, as you said, it's, it's kind of a coffee table book. So it was, it's sort of designed to be a film by film study of, of him and his work and the relationship between man and film. That obviously becomes a biography through that, but it isn't the life and times of Ridley Scott. Uh, you know, there's none of the kind of marriages and backdrop. There is some personal stuff and how it relates to the films, but that's not quite my intention with this book. It's much more about how the films and him work together. Totally. I, I definitely got a sense it felt more um, when I was reading it. And of course, I'm not done because there's just a lot to it. But um, <laughs> It felt very ex extensive, expansive, but it also I felt like it was a discussion with a director who has forever changed the the field or the the atmosphere of filmmaking. Movies are the way they are in part because of how he made his movies early on in his career. And the book feels very much like diving into those ideas, diving into Alien, diving into Blade Runner. Those two films are you know, the the zenith of science fiction. And Ridley yeah. Scott is to thank for that in part. Um, and that book really, really feels like uh, those are the anchor points and everything he's done from there. But I also feel like, yeah, it's very historical. It feels like a history book in some ways too, like a, a film history book. Well, well yes, I mean, Ridley's now 82 and he's been making films since he was 30. And obviously... His career as a, a director and a designer uh, goes right back to the 1960s. So he's been around a while. Um, so there is a great historical element to it. And essentially you say about you know, the, the science fiction and those two films, are, which I think are masterpieces, as you say, and are vitally important, probably the key films for him. Part of what I wanted to do is a kind of subtext within the book, was sort of figure out where those images come from. Because I think there is with Ridley is he couldn't tell you. If you sat down and go, how did you come up with those ideas in Blade Runner? You know, he would just go, it was in my head. I could see it. In fact, one of the great problems on set you know, in, during the great battle to get Blade Runner made was that I don't think Scott could ever quite communicate what was in his head to the crew. They were going, well, what is it you're after? What is it? Because he endlessly fiddled and dry ice and neon and all these fabulous images. They said, until you saw you know, what was in the viewfinder, it was impossible to tell. It was what was in Ridley's head. And I kind of wanted to find, to some extent, get to where that, that kind of missing magic, if you want, the kind of mystical side of him, you know, where does it come from? I think a lot is to do with uh, how he grew up, 
and I talk about this in the book about you know, this Northumberland, the north of England, with this great sort of rainstorms coming in off the hills. And you know, he used to go to art school and he used to go past big smelting works on, on the way to every day he would see it. You know, and, and when he drove past at you know, nighttime, you'd just see it all lit up. So you can see Blade Runner is, was kind of there on the hill. Um, obviously, yeah, he, he went to art school um, and that was a lot to do with it, that he could have been a painter, he could have been an artist, and he is a kind of painter. Um, it's a cliche to say painting with light, and, and but that's what he does. You know, he constructs these beautiful tableaus and frames. And something um, I think, so his love of film comes into it, but there is a, a kind of a fairy tale quality, if you want, about his work that I think is kind of subconscious, that he makes films however gritty, and, and there's no doubt that Alien is a very gritty film. They're also kind of romantic in the kind of the general sense of the term romantic. You know, I always say it's like he makes science fiction films like they're period films, like they're old, you know, that is old in the future. And that's got this lovely texture to it. And that's him. You know, all his films are kind of period pieces in a way because he sort of constructs his glorious paintings out of them. And I think also there was something about he was in advertising and he created. Ridley Scott Associates, and it was hugely successful even before he'd made his first film. And a lot of that imagery was born in, in that world where he was constructing these perfect uh, 30 second to two minute little films to sell stuff. So it's all about creating images that is desirable and you know, to capturing our kind of subconscious and go, you want these things. You know, I, I was talking about this the other day with some, some critic friends about Blade Runner and the contradiction, it's, it's both this sort of dystopia and this vision of a terrible future, yet one that's highly desirable because we all kind of want to go there and live there because it's so beautiful. It yeah, kind of contradicts itself. It's a comfort, yeah. there's a comfort about it for sure. Um, and I think that's him and that's part of his advertising background and that kind of that slightly mystical romantic side to him. And I think it makes him a, a fabulous filmmaker because he can do the blockbusters and he can do all that kind of stuff, but he adds just that other element that's, that is uh, he would never want to talk about it but it's there a kind of holy thing in his films an aura if you want during your uh, multiple interviews with him you said you had over 10 interviews with him um in over the course of his career and certainly the man shows no sign of stopping um, yeah there's a lot that has probably affected his work the death of both of his brothers um uh you know right now he's sort of uh headfirst into AI and what the implications of that might mean with Raised by Wolves. Um, he's sort of pursuing some uh, ideas that that have been brewing since, well, for a long time, that he sort of uh, played on with the Alien prequels and now with Raised by Wolves, he's all into. Um, I'm yeah. curious, uh, w during your interviews with him, what, how was his life experiences in terms of dealing with death um, informing his art. I know that uh, his oldest brother had died before the original Blade Runner, and yeah. he, he had said in so, an interview that he wanted to do something darker. Not that he was specifically trying to do something darker, but something was just attracting him about a darker story, and I'm curious uh, how that came out in different interviews. Not that you maybe had a conversation about it per se, yeah. but those things inform us, for sure. Yes, I mean, you're right, you know, Ridley's not a guy to uh, engage on, on that level. 
uh, yeah, he would dismiss that kind of question and either say none of your damn business or you know he'll all go sort of take you somewhere he's very good at sort of taking conversations where he wants them to go rather than necessarily where you want them to go um but he does yeah he does come up he does talk about um the fact that he was kind of in a strange place after alien and he was working on june and was getting worried that he was becoming the sci-fi guy I think, yeah, June, this, the scale of June, as, we, as you probably know, is just such an intimidating project. He was working with Dino and he had all Giga's art imagery to do the Harkonnen planet. And I'm sure he would have made a stunning version of June. But then Frank, his older brother, died at that point. And I think he needed something else. And I think he, he was very depressed. And his son, um, Jake, talks about the fact he is a guy who gets depressed, his brother, he has to be active, his father, sorry, he has to be active all the time. He has to keep making films. He doesn't want to slow down. A phrase that Jake uses is uh, black dog. And it was, a, it was a Winston Churchill phrase for depression. You've got to stay ahead of the black dog. You know, the black dog, will, if he's on your shoulder, you're kind of doomed. You know, the depression will come on you. And Scott has spoken about that. And his son's spoken about the fact he, he needs to stay ahead of the black dog. And I think the death of both brothers affected him hugely. And it's very interesting to me, as you kind of intimated in your question, that Blade Runner and this discussion of mortality and lifespans and the possibility of creating artificial life and the morality involved in that, and that, sort of all of it expanding into bigger questions of sort of God, the universe, and creation and where we come from. Um, does boil back down to the fact that he was contemplating the death of his older brother and his own mortality, as we all do. If, if we lose a loved one, it focuses yourself on your own mortality. You're suddenly like, well, what's going to happen to me? And I think when Tony died, and I think Ridley must have been aware his, he was, his brother was very unwell and obviously it was a difficult situation, but he had no idea he was going to kill himself. It was a terrible weekend. I write about it in the book that really had to rush back to LA and, and deal with it and sort of just drop what he was doing. He was, he was shooting the counselor at the time and he had to literally stop shooting and head straight back to LA to, to deal with the family. And I think at that point, he says, that's when Blade Runner 2 came along and he really got the wheels turning on Blade Runner 2. Other things came in and stopped him making Blade Runner 2 for, for good or bad, however you conceive of, of Blade Runner 2049. But again, it was the, it was the it was the ideas I think, and he was sort of going back over them, and it's there in his work throughout. I mean, you're rightly say I think Prometheus and Alien Covenant, for Ridley, I think are driven far more by his interest in artificial life and artificial intelligence and David, and his idea of, of synthetics and and what you call in Blade Runner replicants, and. The idea of creation and the idea of religion and our own place in the universe was much more interesting to him than the creature and going back to, to, to all the kind of old alien stuff. I think that's where those films maybe become slightly confused in their sort of thematic intentions is I think he was making a, a kind of 2001 about man's place in the universe and a very personal films about his own, you know, just struggles with depression and, and life. And at the same time, trying to make an alien film, a couple of alien films. Um, so yes, absolutely. I think he is a guy who makes very personal films. I think all of them, to some degree, reflect him. But he's not a guy who talks in a very personal way. He's quite reserved. So 
you know, he, he's enigmatic. So when you talk to him, you're not going to get the kind of confessions. It's kind of interesting. I, um, I worked on, a, I'm working on a book about James Cameron, which is a bit of a long-term project. And you go, if you speak to Cameron and if you go through the interviews and things, he's a great sort of self-mythologizer. Quentin Tarantino is as well. They tell you the biography, you know, as they go along. They've got stories and they just give it to you. Ridley's not like that. He likes to give you technical data and, you know, who he's been speaking to at NASA and why things are like they are and frame rates. And But if, if you get into why is it like that, he just starts to kind of crawl inside himself and, and resist the question. That's fascinating. I, I, I'm curious, during these discussions, as you, the man has many films, does he approach his films, does he view them all like these are all my children and I love them equally? Or are, like, obviously the juggernauts, Blade Runner, Alien, and then pro probably, um, oh my God. Uh, we say Thelma and Louise, maybe, or Thelma Gladiator? Louise. Gladiator, thank you. Yeah. Um, Gladiator, maybe even Hannibal. Does he talk about, um, obviously there there are conversations, every every film's different, so there's going to be a different conversation that yeah. exists around them. But sometimes with some people, with as artists, because that's what he is, he thinks, well, no, I love each of these, like the children, like I love them each, they're all my children and I love them all the same. Or there might be a little bit more reverence when he's talking about Alien, when he's talking about the original Blade Runner or, or whatever. So I'm curious how he approaches the, those topics. Well, what, what might disappoint fans is that he's very um, pragmatic about it all. The most important project for Ridley Scott is the next one. That's where his brain's at. And he's kind of the least likely to kind of uh, go back and talk about films in a way that they're... Um, you know, works of art or classics. Yeah, you know, he doesn't engage that way. Um, but he does, I mean, Alien, he, he, he's kind of learned to, I think. I, I did one interview uh, around about the 20th anniversary or maybe 25th anniversary, to get my dates right, where our interview was solely about Alien. So it was a really good interview. It was really specific. And he really warmed up, remembering details and remembering frustrations. And But he, he always downplays what's brilliant about him. You go, look, this is extraordinary. You know, how does that work? And what did you? And he goes, that's just a B movie. You know, we had a great creature and it's a B movie and a good engine. He always says that. Aliens just got a good engine. And then you sort of Blade Runner and you go, yeah, it's just, I wanted to get out in that city. I wanted the urban. I wanted the kind of, you know, the alien was all interior. Then Blade Runner was out in, in the city and he wanted to bring all that in. He doesn't, as I sort of said before, he doesn't mythologize. Um, James Cameron will kind of bring up big stories and probably go through all of his grievances from all his films, all the things that were in his way, because he's a battler. Whereas Ridley's is kind of aloof and, you know, he'll go, it just worked, he'll go. And then, but you kind of, you think with, especially with Blade Runner, the fact that they kept going back and tinkering and fixing things, there is a kind of part of his brain that thinks about the past and, and cares about the past because he wants to get those films right. But accolades and compliments are just as water off a duck's back, and they say over here. Yeah, that's interesting, especially his comments surrounding Alien saying, you know, hey, it was a good big movie. It worked. It was a good engine. His characters in that film mythologize that film. His characters in Alien are what made that film work. Their believability, the way that they were acted. It was really incredible. And I'm, 
it's interesting. It's interesting because I've seen him in interviews, of course. Yeah. Um, whether it's interviews I've seen in, on video or um, interviews like your book that I've read, um, he. It's interesting how he perceives his own films as opposed to how the masses perceive his own films. What he, per, what he um, interprets as no, this worked because of this, as opposed to. A differing opinion like no this worked because of this not to say that people are wrong or right um but it's fascinating to see auteurs um digest or redigest their work audibly and come up with things that the fans of their work is like like oh yeah that's interesting but yeah ripley's so awesome you know or or whatever <laughs> you know yeah i mean yeah you gotta remember obviously it's it's a bit about ridley's upbringing and you know he came from a British family, travelled around with his father. He was part of the military at the time, and he has a very northern British attitude of you don't show off, and that's kind of ingrained into his DNA. So it makes him difficult as an interview because he doesn't particularly like showing off. Of course, he's got a lot to show off about. Also, I think he is um, happiest uh, talking practically and, and engaging practically. So what's interesting to him, you know, he loved, especially at the beginning of his career, operating the camera, handling the camera himself. He's kind of, as I said, a painter. And it's kind of, he can only really understand his process of, of painting, directing films, in the action of doing it. You know, it's on the day that camera moved there and that light was there and that's what made it work. And, you know, on Alien, I love this idea that he would waft the dry ice himself because he, he was the only one who could get the right consistency that he wanted. All the kind of, you know, the, the chippies are there and all the guys are there wafting this dry ice in. And Ridley would just be, no, no, go out there and do it himself. Look, then go back, look through the lens. And only Ridley knew what it, and that's kind of where he is. So his, it's in the doing that kind of makes sense to him. But I think, uh, yeah, I think he does, you know, understand the way that fans adore him, you know, certainly those two films, and does, has kind of come to terms with having to engage with that. Uh, as I say, once we got talking about Alien, you know, you could see the pleasure he had in the way he worked with, you know, the crew and with the cast, you know, the, the idea of the actors. We talked a lot about, you know, the choice of a female lead and the idea of casting Sigourney Weaver. And, you know, he, was, he kind of really warmed up about the fact, you know, he had lots of discussions with Fox about uh, who should be the lead and how they should do it. And, you know, the story is Alan Ladd, who was the head of Fox at the time, came up with the idea of the female hero. And Scott just jumped on it. He went, that's great. That's just great. Because in, in Fox, in Scott's head, there was this idea that we wouldn't know it was Ripley who was the hero until quite late in the film. I think when you watch Alien, I think you know straight away. I think her performance is so strong. And his instinct with the camera is to, to, to go back to her all the time that in the end, the storytelling overpowered the mystery of, of who is the hero. I think kind of Scott just got into that character. And I think he just has um, a real knack with casting. Uh, he loved the, the Alien script. You know, he, he read it in like 45 minutes or something, he got it. And he was just like, I read it and within months he was on a plane and he was in LA going, I know what to do with this. You guys got to employ me. And you know, he, he said his, his great line to them was, I want to make the Texas Chainsaw Massacre of space movies. You know, that's what he was thinking, the visceral reality of the story. Then came all that other stuff, the kind of mystical beauty of the kind of designs, the kind of ethereal elements, the thematic elements. But also I think when he sees 
actors and meets actors, he gets it. I think, you know, he clicks. And I think that really happened with Sigourney Weaver. Uh, you probably know the story that you know, she, they were at their wit's end. They couldn't find their Ripley. And they, and they were talking to Meryl Streep, but she was reluctant. I think she had stuff going on in her personal life and she wasn't being particularly available to them. And uh, the casting director sort of came to Scott and the producers and said, well, this is girl, she's new. She's doing a Broadway play at the moment. Why don't you just meet her? And, and Scott said, well, we've got nothing to lose. We can't find Ripley. And what happened was is Sigourney Weaver got the wrong building. She'd gone to the wrong address and she was young, obviously, at the time, and finally got to the right location in, in New York and sort of burst in, flustered and upset because it, everything was gone wrong. She'd been late and she'd sort of made a fool of herself. And, and for some reason, no one can, could quite tell me why, neither Sigourney Weaver nor Ridley Scott could remember quite why, but she was wearing knee-high leather hooker boots, as they both described it. So she just looked extraordinary. And Scott just said, what happened was this, this extraordinary woman walked in sort of furious at the world at her situation at me and everything and she just barreled through that thing and he said i knew within 30 seconds because this kind of this kind of charisma came off her and this kind of self-possession this kind of iron at her core and scott said, i could just knew and from there i think it's just yeah i think he worked a lot with helen guyler uh, in casting uh, the original Alien, um, and they got there was some skillful moves, you know Harry Dean Stanton and uh, Tom Skerritt, you know all really kind of good gritty seventies actors in the wrong place. I love that about the Alien cast; they're all in the wrong movie somehow, but it's the right move. Um, and then Ian Holm, who's obviously Scott's idea, and John Hurt was Scott's idea. You know, bring that kind of Britishness and homegrownness and that reserve. You know, the one character who's most like Ridley in the whole of that film is, is Ash. You know, he's got the kind of the distance and he's kind of the analytical one studying things. Um, so all those kind of ingredients. Um, again, I'm not sure Scott could answer the question. You said, why did you cast Gorney Weaver or how did you work with the actors that made them so realistic? He would go, well, it was kind of in the script and we kind of got the scenes done. But he had tricks up his sleeve. Of course he did. You know, he, he, he had this thing where all the sets were 3D and they were, you know, they were full sets. And it was they built them so it was really hard to get off set when you were done with the scene, to find your way back to the green room or your dressing room. So the actors were, were constantly getting lost, getting trapped on the set, the Nostromo or, or the derelict. And that was all deliberate. It was all a game. They were getting, getting claustrophobic. They were trapped. Then as, he, as the shoot went on, he started to move the walls in just a little bit, almost undetectably. So the, the, the actors would come on set and go, hold on a second, there was more headroom before, wasn't there? They were the walls wider, as if they were going mad. He was kind of gaslighting them in a way, just to kind of, the whole thing was becoming very atmospheric. And of course, the apotheosis of that was the, the chestbuster, where of course they knew kind of what was going to happen because it was in the script. But they have actually no concept, you know, concept of the severity of what Scott was going to do, and they sort of were hidden. They weren't allowed to be on set, and of course, famously, they came on and he fired all this kind of awful and stuff from the abattoir. He got in the morning, all of it stinking under the lights, and covered them in it. And they just had this incredible visceral reaction to what was going on. And I think all that kind of attitude and that tense sort of. Uh, sort of atmosphere he created for the cast 
created what we see on the screen. You know, guys and, and, and men and women who are right on the edge, you know, who are desperate. It really worked. It really worked. And uh, one thing I did, you know, reading uh, through the alien portion of your book, um, talk having, you know, reading him discussing Sigourney Weaver and, you know, explaining or describing her the way that you did. Um, yeah. And then he just says, I just knew that was her. And I would imagine that frustration she was feeling, it was probably ironically echoing the same character. So he saw the character in her. Like, hey, this is yeah. a woman that's frustrated and she needs something and she has what isn't able to get it. And there she is presenting all of that, all of that charisma, I suppose, by yeah. accident, just by lucky accident. And so he she revealed sort of Ripley to him right away. It's what's interesting about Ridley Scott aiding in the creation of Sigourney we or of Ripley, but also, you know, discovering in some way to Sigourney Weaver, even though she had been working and she was somewhat known. She wasn't the star she was before Alien. It really yeah, yeah. vaulted her into um, the stratosphere in terms of her own career. But she was a woman, I think, aided in part uh, from Alien or because of Alien that people were intimidated by, that people didn't mess with um, throughout yeah. her career. Um, and that's, I think, in large part because of who she is and who she's played and who Ridley Scott saw in her. Uh, and I think it's always a, a, a it's an interesting circle. Uh, I'm curious as we sort of move along, cause I, I, as much as I love alien, I definitely want to go <laughs> into blade runner, but yeah, I'm curious. Are there films that um, Ridley Scott feels like uh, there are underrated in terms of audience reception that he's like, nobody talks about this movie. Let's yes. Let's whether like the three films I have up on my notes are, 1492, White School, and G.I. Jane. Of course, there are many more. I think uh, Hannibal is grossly underrated. I think it's an incredible film. It's an incredible sequel. And I know Ridley Scott doesn't like to do sequels. Um, he tends to not like yeah. to repeat things. Um, so as you approached his films, were, were there any he was more excited to talk about because he doesn't get to talk about them a lot? Um, I get the sense there's a little bit of sort of unfinished business with certain films that he feels didn't get marketed right or were neglected. Um, 1492, which you mentioned, uh, it's a personal favourite of mine as well. So I think I kind of approached it in that way. Is thinking, you know, I think it's very underrated. I think it's visually stunning. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think it's, it's, it's up there with Blade. Yeah. Um, and I think he, um, he put a lot into it and it was a big flop at the time. And part of, I think, his regret about 1492 comes through the edit. I think he had a longer edit. Um, he had like a three-hour theatrical cut that he kind of um, bent to the will of the studios and bent to the will of the producers. And yeah, he, he, he's got this kind of split personality in a way, Ridley Scott, where one half is the artist who wants to you know, get the image and fulfill the dream and make the perfect film. The other half is the practical commercial guy who ran a commercials company who knows there's a studio who needs to make money and you know, you've got to do things in a way that are you know, serve an audience. And those two things can kind of uh, to not sit together perfectly at times. And I think with 1492, he bent toward it being a commercial film and he cut into it in a way that maybe was less satisfying than the film he had. And he said you know, he has a three hour cut he wished he'd put out. He'd had the courage to stick with the original cut i think i love 1492 as you say i think it's a masterpiece it's a terrific film but the last act is in a sense a little hurried you know all the kind of the, the new spain stuff and the kind of falling of, of columbus's kingdom and the storm and 
that's a little bit hurried compared to the other parts of the film. And I think that's where there's a longer 1492. In fact, there is a, a, a story, and I, I didn't get, I haven't got a clarification from this, but that HBO have a four hour cut of it. And they were toying with Ridley to put it out as a kind of mini series, just put it straight onto video on demand and play, play it in segments or get you to watch it. To me, that's wonderful. I mean, it's like, when, when are you gonna show it? I'll be there. Um, so I hope that comes true. Um, so I do think he, Ridley has a certain thing for films, I think, that he felt were neglected. Uh, White Squall is another one you mentioned. I, I think he, did, he felt that was neglected. And I think that's a, you know, not only is that one of his finest storms, and I'll say this as officially, there is no one in cinema, not even Kurosawa, who does better storms than Ridley Scott. You know, he understands the weather somehow. He's an artist of the weather. Um, but he felt, I think that wasn't particularly well marketed at the time and um, it kind of slipped between other productions. It was a small film in terms of budget, uh, but it's a glorious film. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a kind it's of wonderful. A yeah, coming of age film. It's, it's a disaster movie. It's a little bit Lord of the Flies. It's a great Jeff Bridges film, you know, as the kind of mentor figure. And it's a film about, um, Scott would say, the 1960s. You know, it's about the boys sort of go in and arrive on the boat as this kind of innocent part of the 1960s, the dream, these preppy young boys. And at the end of it, it's, you know, the end of the 60s, Vietnam is coming and, you know, the, the world has changed over this voyage. You know, you've seen the Cubans come into it. You've seen something of the political world outside. So it's a little bit about the era as well, White Squall. Um, so I think he, he has a, a great deal of affection for that. He loves, of course, The Duelists, his, his debut film, which is another lovely, lovely film, very, very painterly, uh, based on a Joseph Conrad novella. And it's a story of, I'm sure you've seen it, the story of uh, two um, Napoleonic soldiers who fight these endless unfinished duels to the extent that through their lives, they can't remember why they started fighting. By the end of it, they don't know why they're dueling. They just keep doing it. So it's a kind of allegory of man's folly uh, that he just has to keep fighting. They just don't know. And it's Harvey Keitel and Keith Carradine. And they're just beautifully done. And Scott shoots each of the kind of duels in a different way. These kind of lovely sort of Dordogne backdrops. And that was his first film. And it's absolutely stunning. You would never know it was a, it was a debut film. And he said, yeah, he said that I, you know, I returned to it. He doesn't return to films that often unless he's working on them again, like Blade Runner. And he just said, yeah, holds up all right, that film. That film's pretty good. And for Ridley to say that, that means that film is glorious and just looks, looks mm -hmm. fantastic. Um, yeah, he, he's not, as I said, someone to, to big himself up and he's not someone who naturally goes back to films. But occasionally, you know, he just get a certain sense of satisfaction Thelma Louise, yeah, he said, we got it, we caught something, yeah, and he always says what he loved about Thelma Louise, he thought it was funny, see, I thought I made a comedy, yeah. and I love the fact <laughs> it, it makes you laugh, and yeah. for 80% of the movie, it does, and it's he, just the beginning and the end of the kind of, the kind of catapulted, dramatic parts. Of and he catapulted Brad Pitt to heartthrob status, you know, I mean, that's oh, absolutely. really, his film birth was that movie, for sure. Yeah, you know, Scott is often criticised for not working well with actors. And I think it's absolutely absurd. You know, he's the guy who discovered Sigourney Weaver. He's there at the early start of Tom Cruise's career with Legend. He discovered Brad Pitt. Uh, you know, he, he's, he's there at the beginnings of Russell Crowe. You know, he really established him as a major star. Michael Fassbender, I think, was brought out really by Ridley Scott. So he's got a fantastic eye for a star. 
you know, he's kind of created careers. He's got a, I mean, he, you go back to that advertiser's eye, that kind of commercial director's eye. Yeah, he can see a face, I think. He loves symmetry and faces. And, you know, it's not necessarily he loves beautiful faces. I think he loves captivating faces. And that's what Sigourney Weaver has. And that's what Harry Dean Stanton has in that film. You know, you would never call Harry Dean Stanton beautiful, but he's perfect you know, in, that, in that movie, in Alien. Um, and you look at uh, Rutger Hauer in, in Blade Runner, Roy Batty. He looks kind of like a, a sort of demented angel. You know, he's got this shock of blonde hair and he's got a pale skin. He doesn't quite look human, which is absolutely perfect. I would completely agree with you. Um, I don't, I've actually never read that he's not an actor's director. Um, as, I mean, his, obviously historically there are stories that came from Blade Runner, which I want to get into, and yeah. a little bit of 2049, where Ridley Scott and Harrison Ford didn't get along, but then they sort of both refuted that, saying, no, it was just a stressful environment um, because of the production woes and the producer woes of that film, um, which is my segue into that film, which Blade Runner is the the zenith of sci-fi. You can't yes. get better than the original Blade Runner. It's the, it is the father of modern-day science fiction film it just is i mean every film you've seen since then has a little bit of blade runner in its in its encoding in its dna and uh of course i i know based off definitely your book and other books and other accounts that it took him a while to get his vision fully realized which culminated in the 2007 uh the final cut of blade runner which is actually i saw that in at the cinerama dome in hollywood beautiful it's amazing and i it the when he st- starts talking about those f- that film and maybe when you start asking questions about that film does his tone change i mean i, I know sometimes like for instance david fincher w- directed alien 3 and it was really stressful and it was really horrible for him and he never wants to talk about it again and i also know that ridley scott went through very similar things for Blade Runner. It was not an easy time for him in terms of the way the studio treated him, his firing, his rehiring, them changing the ending, them asking, you know, Harrison Ford to do these voiceovers that Ridley Scott didn't want. How does he uh, address that film? Um, I think he's made his peace with it. But as you say, it was uh, a very, very difficult film. And I think that pain of its creation, I think, will always be part of his own perception of it, uh, I think on a level that we would never really understand. Um, I, I think he, he, it was a film that, you know, was, was really hard to make and in, you know, incredibly difficult for, for Scott to kind of communicate his vision. And he had this extraordinary vision for this Philip K. Dick adaptation, this kind of vision of a dystopian um, world, dystopian LA, as he said, like 40 years in the future and somehow 40 years in the past at the same time. Uh, brilliant kind of uh, architectural ideas. You know, he'd been traveling around the world and making adverts and he'd seen Tokyo and Hong Kong. He'd obviously seen New York and all those cities were kind of uh, fed him an idea of where, you know, the urban environment was headed. And he brought this idea of mass population and, and then kind of, uh, you know, the kind of ecological breakdown and this idea of social strata, the kind of the, the gods in the, in the heavens in the great penthouses, which he built like pyramids and the kind of, kind of dingy yet somehow beautiful ground level you know and all of it sort of stunning and he had this kind of idea growing in his head 
but I never thought he was ever very able to communicate it, certainly not to his DP and not to his production designers very easily. And I think he was, it was his third film and you know, an alien had been tense in its own way, partly because I think Ridley is very controlling because he's a great artist and they can be very controlling as David Fincher is and James Cameron is and Spielberg can be, you know, the, the, these directors, you know, you look at Hitchcock and he was completely controlling. You know, it's auteurs are, are like that. And part of it was that he was kind of a fish out of water. It was the first film that Scott had made in America. You know, it was shot in LA, it was shot on the Warner Brothers backlot. And he didn't really understand how American crews worked and how the, the kind of the ethos behind unions and who does what and who's, you know, where the kind of the lines, you know, the borders lie and what a director should or shouldn't be doing. You know, Ridley Scott had made 2000 ads before he made the duelists. And he said, I, I ruled the roost. You know, I picked up the camera. I filmed what I want. I positioned the lights. I did it. And I think he found the fact he wasn't allowed to do that. He wasn't infuriating. You know, he said it slowed everything down. I would have to explain what I wanted to the cameraman and the DP. They would have to go and try it. And he said, I could have just done it if I operated the camera. And all of this led to this kind of very complicated shoot and, and a lot of tension. And obviously, Harrison Ford felt very neglected and also very tired by something like 55 Nights. I mean, it's a film that's, you know, unless you, you watch the, the original cut, which has the bit on the end taken from The Shining, um, it's a film at nighttime, it's a night film. So they have to film it at night, quite literally. Um, although there is that kind of sunset scene, sort of sunsets in the kind of the penthouse up in the, the Tyrell Corporation. But apart from that, it's a nighttime film. So it was incredibly hard to make and it was and dead rain machines constantly going and dry ice constantly pumped in. Apparently it smelt very acidic on set, something about the, the, the dry ice at that time wasn't sort of as nice as it is now. And so it was quite unpleasant on the throats. You got very sore throats. So it was, you know, really hard film to make. Um, yet, and this is something uh, I think true to Ridley Scott, the difficulty translates into the film. You know, yes, he wasn't communicating with Harrison Ford, wasn't getting on with him. And Ford, you know, he wanted it to be like it had been with Spielberg and Lucas and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. He, he wanted to be part of the filmmaking trio and, you know, enjoy himself. Whereas Scott was like, I'll call you when I need you. And then just say, just, you know, look into the distance over there and point your gun. And, and you know, Ford's going, I don't know what the hell's going on in this film. And yet, if you watch Blade Runner, there's something in, in Ford's performance, that kind of brooding quality that he has, the kind of the strain he's under that is absolutely perfect for Descartes, the kind of existential strife that we understand in the later cuts that Descartes will finally go through, is kind of there in, in Ford's performance. I think it's one of Ford's best performances, that he's kind of restrains all the kind of the, the natural Indiana Jones hand solo charisma, and yet still creates a very compelling character. And what was brilliant in, in Scott's conception was that he would contrast Deckard, this kind of brooding private eye character, kind of like Humphrey Bogart, but not quite as one-linery, with, with Roy Batty, who was this kind of dandy, you know, he dances around the film, quoting poetry and, you know, with his shock blonde hair and, you know, physically climbing the walls. So this is great sort of counterpoints between the person we perceive to be a human being, you know, question mark after it, and the person who is clearly a replicant. 
So these ideas about what makes you human and who is a human and who's not get kind of jumbled up in a really interesting way. And all of that came out of this struggle and strain on the set of the film. So if you went back and reshot Blade Runner beat for beat, yet everybody knows what they're doing and everyone's having a good time and Ridley Scott can be relaxed and get what he wants. And I don't think you'll get the film that they got. I think, you know, it's that, you know, it's Apocalypse Now theory, isn't it? You know, you don't get Apocalypse Now without the nightmare of making Apocalypse Now. Yes. And I think you don't get Blade Runner without the nightmare of making Blade Runner. Not that I think Ridley Scott would say, I would happily go back and do that again. I think it, it knocked him um, quite badly. Certainly the combination of Blade Runner, which didn't do very well, flopped at the same time, the strain and, and the, you know, the, the amount of himself he'd put into it, followed by Legend, which again, it was in some ways even more detailed, more constructed as an environment. And that flopped again. And he, he came out of those two films thinking, am I even cut out to be a director? You know, am I doing the wrong thing? Do people not want this kind of extraordinary vision? And it took him, I think, a sort of 10 years uh, until probably 1492 till he re got his kind of original mojo back in terms of the density and the kind of detailing and the kind of, you talked about it at the very beginning, the, the kind of historical nuance, historical detail that's there in those films. Great art is always born in struggle. Not all great art. There's, you know, the, the irony here is that you have the original Blade Runner film, which was born from pure struggle. And you can see throughout art history, film history, whatever, a lot of, uh, of, the, of the films that we love and adore, there was just terrible things going on behind the scenes to get those movies made whether it's citizen kane or vertigo or um one film after the other where there was stress yeah. and struggle um and ridley scott i think interestingly enough those films that we laud him for were films that weren't successful that films that were that flopped and i think it was th those flops were informing him at the same time probably to become a better businessman to become a better auteur to become the better artist um but then conversely you have 2049 which was not born from struggle which was not um of course he's only an executive producer um but not just only an executive producer he helped get that story yeah. going he helped i mean you know I, i'm speaking to the choir um but that film maybe wasn't this big financial success it didn't re wasn't really to in all honesty it wasn't this big financial success however it was embraced and loved prob probably 95 percent of the fan base and critics thinking this is film as a masterpiece so it was interesting though like even the struggle of the original blade runner that struggle was very alive behind the scenes of the sequel knowing yeah. the history knowing how tough it was to get Ridley Scott's vision, knowing how important it was to honor that vision while doing something different. Um, have you been able to have a con? I think, I mean, I, I don't know the timeline for all of your discussions, but how does he um, look at 2049? I, I mean, I, he is the father of the film. I mean, he might not yes. be the director. Yes. He, isn't, he isn't technically the writer, even though his ideas are there. How does he digest it in light of the fans and the critics adoring it yeah i, I did speak to ridley about uh, blade runner 2049 but it was before it was finished um i'd been on set i'd, I'd met denis villeneuve and um i met paris ford and, and then i spoke to ridley later he wasn't on the set at that time i think he was shooting um 
all the money in the world. He was in Italy. And so I didn't speak to him sort of about the film once it was done. And he, he was interesting. I mean, as you say, you know, it is his kind of child and he was intending to direct it. And he and Hampton Fancher had worked on the new script. They had this idea, the, the idea about Rachel and reproduction and the idea of if a replicant can reproduce, is it a human, you know, and what would the child be? And you know, that was the next stage of their exploration of the idea. So that was all in place and was being developed until the point where um, sort of commercial pressures and timings and all those kind of things came into place. And he, you, he could go ahead and do Alien Covenant and, it all, and the Martian and those things kind of got in front of it for him. Uh, and he gave it up. And, and I think it's a terrific film. Don't get me wrong at all. I, I, I like Daniel Villeneuve's work a lot. But I think what it is, it's, uh, and Daniel Villeneuve said this, he said, I, I've made my version of Blade Runner, my sequel to Blade Runner. I've not made Ridley Scott's. And visually, while it harkens to the, the original, what I found about it, as, as fantastic as it was, was that it lacked something that I craved. And that was the original Blade Runner, that, that kind of extra Scott touch. You know, as Cameron says, he has the best eye in the business. You know, he can see it. And Villeneuve has a terrific eye, and he had Roger Deakins doing these wonderful lit sets. Yet they weren't quite Blade Runner. They, you know, they weren't as, as I said at the beginning, weren't quite as romantic or fairy tale. You know, the, the movement of light in Blade Runner is very important. Spotlights constantly sort of training over the, the city. And um, Denis Villeneuve is, is much more kind of brutalist. You know, he likes big walls and, and sort of large images, sort of blocks of, of colour, whereas Ridley loves detail and, and sort of, and so they are different, different filmmakers. And I felt I had to really get through that problem. So I didn't really love 2049 until I saw it the second time when I could kind of know that I wasn't really going to be seeing the sequel that was in my head, and the sequel that might have been in Ridley Scott's head. And I watched the Denis Villeneuve film. And I think Scott, you know, he, he can be a bit of a cynic in his own way. He was a bit disappointed with, I think, the length of it. I think he felt it was too long. I and mean, what is it? It's nearly a three hour film, isn't it? 2049 is it two hours 40 or something. Um, I didn't feel it was that long. I quite like long films. But I think in this case, Scott felt that they didn't make a, you know, he was the executive producer, I suppose. And he didn't feel they'd made a commercial enough film, kind of ironic, given the guy you know, who was on the other side of the, the, the line back in the day. Um, so, yeah, I don't think he's overly happy with how it played and the fact that it was a flop still. But I'm sure, you know, he admired the imagery and admired what Denis Villeneuve could do. They had a good relationship during the making of it. Yeah, you know, he gave his baby to Denis Villeneuve, you know, something that was enormously personal to him. He said, right, you go and do what you want. And he stayed away. He was only on set for about a week. And he stayed away because he knew he was going to be a problem. But they all said, you know, Harrison Ford said and Judith Villeneuve said, you know, every day they would go, what would Ridley do? You know, they had a presented with the shooting and they would go, would go through your head. Well, what would Ridley do here? You know, he was the ghost, you know, who was haunting the, that production. Um, I think it's a, it's a great movie. It's a fascinating movie. I just wish Ridley Scott had done it. I, I definitely think, though, I mean, again, as much as I love it, I find it to be a masterpiece. It, is everything I wanted it to be, and yet so different. However, um, I do feel like it is a natural sort of cinematic child of Ridley Scott, um, and yeah, it's different yeah. in the ways like I, I don't 
Um, uh, so hopefully he takes pride in that. Hopefully he takes pride in the fact that it is so loved and it is so adored. Maybe it's not the film that he would have made. Definitely it isn't. Um, and, but it's a success um, in the hearts and minds of the people who matter, um, which I, I would imagine he can appreciate. Um, yeah, I, I'm sure. I, I imagine, and I like to think that he's had conversations with Denis Villeneuve about June. Maybe he's seen some of June um, because he was going to do it, and Denis knew that. And you know, so they would have had those discussions. You know, what were you thinking? How are you going to shoot it? Um, so it'd be nice to think that um, Ridley's kind of helped him out, and he's good with, with directors. Ridley Scott with other directors bringing them on and. You know, I think he likes to feel he's giving back a bit and bringing on the next generation. He's brought so many through, you know, his advertising company and then the video side that they do and all the films that RSA and, and Scott Free have made, he's only produced. Um, so he's been a mogul in his own way, you know, to bring forth new filmmakers. Um, so I think he has, has great respect for, for fellow filmmakers. Even him, he and Cameron have this kind of, great almost like brotherly relationship where they're kind of spiky with one another and kind of adore one another at the same time because you know they they're the same kind of mindset they have that kind of duality about them you know the the artist and the engineer working sort of together and sometimes one dominates the other yes uh to to go back to uh the original blade runner i wanted to bring uh some attention to a, a quote by scott derrickson in the in your book yes. where he says uh the original blade runner might be the best american film ever made and i remember reading that and thinking hold on like i i don't think that it's necessarily an american film in fact i feel like blade runner feels european it has a very european sensibility the quiet the calm the silence um the amount of time that ridley scott is able to let the characters in the world breathe are yeah, yeah, yeah. specifically european styles and I, I i i'm just sort of curious how you uh digested or processed that comment uh i kind of agree with you i, I think it's a very european film obviously ridley is british and brings a british sensibility i think he drew a lot upon tarkovsky um you know as a, as a, as a when he was at art school he was a, a cinephile at the same time and he would go and watch everything and he watched the French New Wave and he watched Kurosawa films and you know, and his great films were The Third Man, which obviously is obviously a big influence on Blade Runner as well, which is a very European film. Uh, he loved Wells and he loved Kubrick, of course. And Kubrick, while American, is also a very European director because he, you know, he's he was the master of the great space within films, you know, within 2001, quite literally, who created film as something that's incredibly slow and gradual. And I think Scott greatly admired that and I think wanted to draw on it, wanted the chance for the camera to kind of absorb that world and, and be part of that world. And, you know, I, I, the, the criticism always leveled at Blade Runner, certainly at the time it came out, was that there's no plot. But for me, there is a plot, but also that plot and imagery are kind of one of the same thing. They're kind of melded together. Characters, plot and imagery all seem to be part of the same provocative atmosphere that it goes for. Um, so I, I do accept your argument, and I do think it's a very European film in style and in creation. I suppose the argument that Scott Derrickson's making is it was a Warner Brothers film, shot on a Warner Brothers backlot, produced by Americans with an American crew. 
Um, many years ago, I, I ran an awards ceremony for Empire Magazine, and we had a category thing. We had a best film and a best British film. And we'd have endless arguments. Uh, it was during the whole Harry Potter era about whether Harry Potter films were British. And I always argue they're not. You know, it would say, well, the British directors or, or crews and cast and everything's British, they've shot there. And I would say, well, look, it's got a hundred million dollars coming from the Warner Brothers coffers. But, you know, it was really about what we were trying to achieve best British film as a category, you know, support smaller films. But the argument is, you know, where does a, com you know, a film come from? What is its country of origin? It's kind of interesting. Um, I, I suppose Scott Derrickson is saying, you know, in, in kind of Hollywood terms, it's a Hollywood movie. Um, and I think what he was trying to say, it was, it's about as good a film as the Hollywood system can create, you know, without it being sort of an independent art film, you know, left to an auteur. It's, it, you know, it's, I think called it the Holy Eucharist, you know, of, of certainly science fiction. Um, I don't think the, the studio quite knew what he was doing and creating, and it was almost, you know, despite all that. But I, I think Dr. Derrickson's point is about, um, you know, Scott went into the Hollywood system and started to kind of create art within it, using its tools and being part of it, rather than sort of being like Kubrick and working in isolation and doing what he wanted in, in a far off land. I would definitely agree with you. Uh, one film that comes to mind when I think of maybe one of the best American films ever made, because even if you think of Hitchcock's films, Hitchcock was not American. He might've yeah. had American money, but those weren't necessarily American films. Even though films like Psycho certainly informed what would later on become summer blockbuster films. Psycho was, so, yeah. and the birds were a father to Jaws and to Close Encounters and to Texas Chainsaw Massacre and those event films, for sure. And I think of a film, a more recent film, like There Will Be Blood, it's probably one of the best American films I've ever, I've ever um, seen. That is wholly an American, an American story, an American director, and it's the best that we could offer. Um, moving along a little bit, I what I'm curious, and again, I have not read all of your book. Just I will for sure, obviously. Um, <laughs> but is Ridley Scott able to know his failures, his films that have failed, his films that could have been better, his films that maybe? Uh, needed some more work. I know we were discussing 1492 and a longer cut and things, you know, and he wanted, you know, he had a bigger film in mind, but things got cut because of time and all of that. And I know the same thing happened with Kingdom of Heaven, which I think is a fabulous film. I think the director's cut of that actually is a, an incredible film yeah. um, that also suffered so many issues when it was cut for the theatrical release where things didn't even make sense because the parts that made sense were on the cutting room floor because the studio wanted a shorter film they wanted a more successful film financially and it didn't happen um so those films aside i'm curious if ridley scott is able to or has spoken with you about films that he thinks have not been successful and what he could have done better as an artist um I've never really spoken to him about uh, the kind of the literal th what he thinks is sort of failings. He, he's often discussed wrong cuts, and obviously Blade Runner is a classic example of he thinks the the original cut is a failure because it doesn't express the central plot line that Deckard may or may not be a, a, a replicant. You know, it keeps him as a human being and has this terrible happy ending. Although I do appreciate people do like the original cut. Um, so that is an admission that he got that wrong. And as you say, he, he admits he got Kingdom of Heaven 
wrongs are cut. He bowed to pressure and took out a large sequence of it. And a lot of it doesn't quite tie up until you watch the director's cut. Um, and I think I suppose within that, there is an admission that he hasn't sort of passed the screenplay quite well enough to get his timings right. You know, if your film only works at four hours, then is that the right story to be telling? Um, certainly from a studio's point of view, you, you would say. Um, for me, I think sometimes he can be his own worst enemy in overreacting to criticism. And I think you look at the differences between Prometheus and Alien Covenant, and you see a guy who's kind of over-adjusted. You know, everyone had criticized Prometheus for not having enough of Alien in it. And he spent the whole time during the whole sort of publicity run on, on Prometheus and just saying, you know, the creature's done, it's a cliche, I'm moving on, I want to do something different, I'm taking bits of it, but I'm not, you know, going to do the same old Giga stuff. And we all looked at it and went, can't you just do the Giga stuff? It's much better than this. Um, and I think he was very frustrated by that and maybe looked at that and said, well, okay, we got that wrong. And, you know, I was on the set of Alien Covenant and he did say, look, um, people wanted the creature back. So that's what we're doing. You know, that's you're responding to commercial need. But I'm not sure he wanted to bring the creature back. I don't think artistically he was sort of driven to. I think sometimes that commercial side of his brain can make mistakes, you know, can overpower the, the kind of artistic side. And yeah, think inferior films may may emerge from that. Um, so I think there are there are things he, he admits he gets wrong, um, and there are occasions I think where he's been frustrated by circumstance, or you know the great filmic machine gets the better of you. Sometimes perhaps he doesn't have the best ear for a script, and you think, well, why are you? You know, what's what did you see in this? Um, uh, Covenant maybe is a bit like that. I think that script may have could have done with a few more turns at the typewriter. Um, yeah, I, I like The Counselor. I know a lot of people who don't, who find it a very um, strange film with a very strange kind of tone of voice. You know, is it meant to be funny? Uh, and it's also really dark at the same time. But Scott, you know, said I think this is a this is a really morbid comedy. It's 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 kind of the, you know, it's a comedy about the Mexican drug cartels and the devil. You know, and it's like okay, Ridley, fine. You know, um, but I know that some people felt you know, it was kind of a very wretched film and made them feel very kind of antagonistic. Um, I'm not sure Exodus, you know, quite fulfilled its promise. I think the, the plague sequence, you know, is Ridley at his very best, you know, and you can see that's what got him most excited. I'm going to do the seven plagues and sort of brought all his majesty to that. But a lot of it was just a bit like, you're just doing ancient Egypt, but for what purpose? Um, I wonder, you know, when he, in his early part of his career, he took quite a long time between projects to decide the next one. He kind of he, he kind of questioned what he was doing and debated things. And I think as an older man, he, he doesn't stop to do that. He said, I just keep going. Yeah, he, he says it flops, fuck it and move on. Yeah, that's his attitude. Film flops, okay, fuck it, what's the next one? Yeah, he keeps going. And that's kind of the Ridley thing. He, what he's interested in, you know, he's finishing the last jewel right now, getting on to Gucci, the next film. You know, working with Lady Gaga and De Niro and Pacino and all the great cast he's got lined up. That was what would be in his mind and bringing whatever, you know, lovely look, you know, and a kind of advertising look he can probably bring to that is kind of fantastic to think about. Um, but you wonder, you know, is he editing too fast sometimes later in his career? Is, is he kind of not 
getting these films sorted out. You know, Kingdom of Heaven took a few goes before it worked perfectly because maybe he was just moving on to the next film. Um, yeah, I, I don't, I don't want to sound critical of him because I, I love his work. Um, but yeah, I, I think there are times when um, Ridley can be too busy, shall we say, and sometimes you know maybe the individual films need a bit more care and attention. Um, I think that's I, the danger I, yeah. of becoming a businessman in the yeah. film where you, I, I think um, when you have more time to focus on one project at a time, those projects benefit from that. If you're always, like you said, he's always looking to the next thing. It can maybe sometimes affect the current project where your mind's somewhere else, where you're knee deep. I, I you know, I've every film of his, I really have enjoyed except for two projects. One, which was, ex I have not seen The Counselor. I didn't, based off the trailers, I wasn't really interested. Um, uh, Exodus, I saw and I did not like from beginning to end. I thought it was just not good. Um, and then Raised by Wolves, I, I really feel like it was absolutely incoherent. Those are the only two projects of his that I felt like, no, these aren't working at all. Rel by and large, most of his work... Um, even if something isn't quite working, whether it's Prometheus, there's a lot that is working in that movie. Yeah. Even though in general, I don't really like Prometheus, but there's a masterpiece of a film in that movie. It, there is, and I can see it. They didn't find it when they edited it. They didn't find it when they wrote it, but it's there. Um, and it's powerful. There's some powerful ideas. And I think Covenant's a little bit of a better push to that, but it also largely falls short. One thing that I wanted to mention to you, and what I still find fascinating. And when Prometheus released, I didn't have this podcast at the time, but I was knee deep in the only sort of source of fandom there was online for um, the alien series, which was AVP galaxy. Um, they're, yeah. They, they incorporate predator too. So they're not like purists or solo, solely alien. However, of course there are swathes of people in those uh, communities you know are there only for the alien films yeah there was never a discussion that there was not enough alien in prometheus that was never a discussion this has been brought up before uh, several times where myself like my show and is the biggest alien podcast there is period and then the next show might be avp galaxies podcast and i've talked with aaron percival who is the founder of that uh of avp galaxy one of them and the operator um and we've discussed before on show saying this was never a thing it was never a thing that people felt like there wasn't enough alien in prometheus some producer somewhere must have grabbed that out of the sky or misinterpreted something yeah. and fed that to ridley scott i think the problem was for the fans end was like you're selling it like well maybe what is this what is it? oh maybe it is maybe it isn't maybe it is maybe it isn't yeah. just t don't you don't we're really smart people. You don't have to like shroud this. And most of this, a lot of that was happening from things Damon Lindelof was saying during promotion yeah. for the film. And people are like, dude, this is the siren from alien. There's the dare. There's the juggernaut from the first film. We're not dumb. So I think yeah. the contention might've been like, is it an alien film or isn't it? I, I, most people, even people who have problems with Prometheus, it wasn't, because of a lack of alien it was by and large it was the pro a lack of characters a lack of yeah. really good characters and that that script got made without someone noticing like these characters are shit 
um, <laughs> uh, until the very end. I mean, there's yeah. so much, and like you, I, I really respect Ridley Scott. I don't like to overly criticize. I mean, I can, and I have for sure. Um, but I think by and large, his work is profound. But I think that um, just because you brought it up, I think it was important to note that no one missed the alien from Prometheus. What people were, were annoyed at was the mischaracterization of what the film was. Yeah. And people were like, just tell us what it is or just call it alien Prometheus or whatever. Um, and then I think as we got to Covenant, it was very clear that Ridley Scott was tired of the alien because it, it looked ham, ham fisted in. It didn't feel like really like a character of the film. It felt like, Oh yeah, there it is. There it is. Oh look, there's it's running. Oh look, there's all of them. And you could feel that Ridley Scott's heart wasn't in that, that he felt like forced to do it. And, and for a lot of the fans, it's unfortunate because a lot of the ideas in Prometheus we loved, and we would have loved to see some of those ideas continue and not have Ridley Scott do something he didn't want to do. Um, so for whatever that's worth. Um, it's kind of, it, go ahead. I see what you're saying. Um, one of my problems with Prometheus is exactly what you're kind of hinting at. It's not that it wasn't an alien movie. It was that clearly it kind of was, but they kind of covered it over very vaguely. So mm-hmm. everything was, you know, from its original conception, because it was born as a, a straight alien prequel with all the alien stuff in it. And all they'd done is sort of scratched it out and sort of put something over the top of it, which wasn't quite as good. You know, the, the creature, the biology and the life cycle was confusing. And, and it was so beautifully sort of done in the original, you absolutely understood what was going on. Uh, so there's that kind of sense they hadn't quite, you know, either start again, write a plot that wasn't an alien film, or stick to an alien film, you know, make up your mind. You can't have it both ways. And I think Prometheus struggled with that. And I think you're right, Alien Covenant kind of felt like you've gone too much the other way. You, you've kind of like, okay, you need aliens? Okay, here's aliens, you know. And people were like, well, no, make, make it make sense. Um, it's quite funny. I, I was, as I said, I was on the set of Alien Covenant. And I was in the creature shop. And they were showing me around the various things and Neomorph. And they had a lot of models. And I think they replaced a lot of them with CGI when they came to do it. But I went, what about the Queen? You know, in Aliens. And they were like, don't mention the Queen around Ridley. <laughs> yeah, there is no Queen as far as Ridley's concerned. Yeah, he doesn't see them. Doesn't fit into his kind of universe that he's you know his idea of the biology there's no queen that's Cameron's thing and we're like okay fine fine I, I read an early script of, of Covenant and there were better things in it I think got cut for maybe money or time there was a bit at the end you know the where she's on the kind of floating deck and she, there's an alien on it with her in fact originally it was going to be a neomorph and an alien both on the deck with her and they sort of fight each other she's got to try and get out of the way there's this thing where you've never seen before. It's like two aliens fighting, you know, different. I thought, well, that's a really clever idea. I've never seen that. You know, how would they attack one another? Um, you know, kind of interspecies battle. And that all got cut so for time or money or it wasn't working. I don't know. There were kind of interesting ideas in it that never came to fruition. Yeah, I, I, I would imagine that is interesting. It also sounds very fan servicey. Not that Ridley Scott does that, but I could imagine him thinking, oh, I don't know how necessary this is. However, it might have been a little bit different than a female protagonist blowing an alien out of an airlock again, um, yeah. eventually. Um, and, and, and again, conversely, the the 
some of the issues that people had with Prometheus and like, oh, just tell us what the movie is. Don't pretend that it's something and it isn't. People then with Alien Covenant were like, just make the film you want to make. Don't, you know, Um, because you can tell. You can just tell when an artist throws themselves into something or an artist feels like, oh, I got to do this thing. You can just tell by the by the the final product. Um, but that being said, I, there's parts of Prometheus or Covenant that I also really enjoy. I thought the first hour was rather interesting. It's also a rather interesting beat for beat repeat of Alien in some ways. It's also it's almost like the Force Awakens of Alien um, yeah. version of because you have the first officer who's a woman who then you know all of these same beats they throw someone who's per- perished out of an airlock much like Kane. Um, there's all of these things happening that that. Uh, mirror some of the things that happened in the original alien um but by and large i think that there's a lot of gripping ideas and they're they're worthy films to the lore they just could have been a little bit better let me switch over to yeah uh as we come to a close i don't want to keep it too long it's about it's been about an hour and 20 minutes um in terms of the research for this book and i know you have been you have spoken with him a lot and probably for some of those times it wasn't you weren't putting a book together or were you over the course of time you're like i have a project in mind one day that i want to add these to how was the process of getting all this together happening for you as you were going along as you go i mean when you you do the original interviews uh, any journalist will probably tell you especially if you talk to someone regularly there's a part of your brain that starts writing a book you know, if you've spoken to several directors over a period of time and you start to kind of collate and go, well, this bit of the interview kind of fits into that. And, you know, I, I had a job to do. And I, when I worked for a magazine, I had to get the, the features written and I had a particular films to cover and all that obviously was the priority. But I always kind of was doing an internal filing system, whereas I kind of, this is the alien bit and later on a bit. And, I, you know, I get a chance to talk to him about Gladiator. And, um, and you know, so I, I sort of, not quite as deliberately as was writing a book in my head, but I certainly was kind of creating a sort of catalogue in my head to to put it together. And, you know, when you, you write books, it's, it's, it's an awful lot of graft and, and work and just in physically putting it together. So you do wait for your kind of, your name signed on the dotted line and you know they're going to pay you. Because <laughs> otherwise you're kind of writing into the vacuum a little bit. I had written stuff and notes uh, when we started talking about it, done some sample chapters and, I actually did by Alien, I think it was, I did was my first sample chapter. Uh, so I had written some stuff. Um, but once the book was a go and it was happening, it, then it's a sort of case of you know, each film comes its own sort of category. And what have I got? What are the, the interviews I have uh, give me? What, you know, who do I need to sort of pad them out? It became clear I wasn't going to get Ridley directly for the book. Um, he was off shooting Race by Wolves and, and then moving on to Last Jewel. Um, and wasn't particularly interested in being having an official biography in that sense. Um, so I knew I kind of had to work a distance from him. Um, so it was a case of, and then it's sort of, a, you're given a word count. You know, it's a very practical element to, to book writing. You know, they don't sort of supply enough paper so you can write into the distance. They're like, these are the amount of words you have. Then you've got some 20 something films that release made. You've got to sort of do some maths in your head going, well, I know I need a chapter devoted to Alien and Blade Runner and to Thelma and Louise and to Gladiator, because I felt, and Prometheus, I thought they were the kind of the principal films in terms of the career uh, in very different ways. Um, and then it was a, how much you do on, you know, like um, Black Rain or 
someone to watch over me, you know, uh, very early films that are kind of forgotten. And this kind of process of, you know, getting rid of stuff you really love because there's just not room for it. I had a much sort of longer section on Black Rain that kind of cut back. Uh, all practical things in writing a book. But um, then, uh, yeah, in terms of research, um, obviously beyond the interviews I have, and, and I'd spoken to Scorny Weaver several times, I had all that material, and uh, Tom Skerris and various people and aliens I've spoken to over the years, um, and Blade Runner people, and so I've kind of got a nice body of stuff I, I could put to use. And I did some newer interviews. I know some of the crew people behind the scenes I spoke to. Um, I just did the, there's the kind of old fashioned side of it. You read a lot. You kind of go back into the archives. There's a very good uh, there's a British Film Institute in London, and they have a big library, and you can put that to use, full of old interviews. And yeah, it's very always very interesting to read interviews from the time of release, because you get a very different person than you spoke to later on, with a very different attitude towards things. So it's very good to get the kind of contrast between those different times. I read a lot of reviews of the films at the time, and. I read a lot of the kind of the pre-existing biographies. They're not actually very many on Ridley Scott, I about two or three. I read the big books, Future Noir, I'd already read, but I read it again and went through all that stuff. I think it's Peerless and Blade Runner in terms of just exhaustive detail. Paul Salmon's book is just fantastic. Um, and then I kind of, you know, read about Cormac McCarthy and The Counselor, I did all the kind of things. Um, and there just comes a point where you, you think, I just got to stop filling my head with stuff and just get it out onto the page. Um, and that's the discipline, you know, it, it's, it's actually in, in writing books is about a lot of it. So what you don't put in and how you kind of work out what you do put in, how you knot it all together. And I was looking for, I said at the beginning for themes and, and sort of stories and, and an idea about where these images coming, come from things I could sort of tie it together with the idea of his past that keeps getting echoed, you know, and his obsessions with things, as you said, like AI and, and science fiction and, and the future and his, his kind of relationship with the you know, film at large and Hollywood history and where he stands, you know, as, as a filmmaker in comparison to the world. And so wanted something of that. Um, I mean, people will, you people will have to tell me whether I've achieved it or not, but, uh, you know, in the end, you, you kind of just come down to, trying to write that book and you know one of the, the the joys of writing about Ridley is you get to describe his films you know in, in words as much as you can and that's one of the great pleasures just trying to describe what you love about Blade Runner and in words it's just a fantastic pleasure. As I was reading the book and seeing sort of quotes from people and referencing things that Sigourney Weaver said my question was like oh he spoke to Sigourney Weaver and um the kind of access my question was yeah uh, what your like the access is and how do you how do you get access for i mean largely coming from empire you have the pedigree you have the this is who i am this is what i've done agents and publicists respond to that they think you know and is that essentially how how um some of the anecdotal quotes and things like that within the book came about yeah it's it's a mix of things uh, some of it is um having the luck of having an empire behind me and my experience and my history on empire and, and the various things I've done on empire, which kind of got into the book. Um, so Sigourney Weaver, I'd done twice for empire, three times for empire. And then once again, more recently um, for the book and only, it was only brief. And then a lot of it's just old fashioned negotiation. You know, you, I, you've dealt with these kind of uh, producers and publicists and agents and various different levels. You are begging and 
you know, not, not lying, but sort of bending the truth a little bit sometimes and, you know, and, and offering things and, you know, not always successfully. Um, you know, I didn't get Fassbender. I would love to have spoken to him. I've spoken to him once uh, about uh, Assassin's Creed. That was, I was working on at the time and, you know, I'd like to know much more about his. I did, I spoke to him about Covenant, actually. So I did do Fassbender. I did use a couple of things, but, um, so some of it's just luck. Some of it, um, the, the Alien Covenant time and set visit was because I'd written a book called Alien Vault, um, which a lot of my yes, early which I own, yeah. which is amazing. Marvelous, thank you. Amazing. Uh, ben, so a lot of stuff. It's an amazing book. Thank you. Um, a lot of the stuff had come from that, you know, uh, that had been a great store of things. And also Fox had worked on that book in terms of pictures. And when Covenant came up, I, I went to the people I knew at Fox and said, look, I've written Alien Vault. Can I help you guys out? Can I sort of, you know, be... And they do things that are called generic interviews and published materials. And they said, great. Well, they sent me out to Australia and, and, and I just did a lot of material for them. And they loved the fact that I'd written this book and it sort of helped the onset. And, you know, what was a great joy for me is you know, there was my book in the production department and the costumes department. And I'm going, well, I've come full circle, you know. My book, Alien Vaults, I've been used on, on Alien Covenant, which was just a great feeling. Um, so, there, yeah, and, and within that, that's how I got to read early scripts of Alien Covenant. And, you know, so you get blessed, you know. You build on things in the past. I was known as a writer and I'd written books and been successful. I'd written books like my Peter Jackson one, which had very good access. And you sort of play off that. Um, and you, you kind of think what you have to do is, is, is a, a tip to anyone. If you kind of go into someone to ask for quotes about someone else, so on a director they've worked with, if you say biography, people get nervous. That you're looking for personal things and commentary on personal level. I always kind of sort of talked about, I'm doing a sort of film by film study of them, you know, that sort of celebrates their films. You want to put people at their ease. And, and that's kind of what I wanted. I, I wanted anecdotal stuff about the making of the films. Um, and obviously through that, you get an, a view on the director. But, you know, this isn't, you know, a Wartsnall biography. It's, it's, it's a study of a filmmaker. And if you can get that across to the agent and, and to the publicist, and that can get back to the celebrity, sometimes it does pay off. You mentioned that you were on set for Alien Covenant. As a fan of Alien, as a fan of Ridley Scott's films, what was that like for you? It was fantastic. As you say, it was a very fanboy-like experience, but I obviously had to kind of stow a lot of that because you're, you're there as a professional and you're there not to be overawed because you want to be a professional writer, journalist. So I had to kind of be on my best behavior. Um, and it's very hard work, actually, because you, you're only on set for a couple of days and trying to get all the, I had to interview all the cast and a lot of the crew. So it was very, very busy. Um, so you'll kind of go into a room, you'll do Fassbender and then um, Catherine Waterstone, and then you'll go off and do the creature shop and you'll go into the practical effects shop and interview them. So you're on your, you're on your toes the whole time. But the, the, the great joy, and I write about this in my intro to Ridley Scott, I, I got to go on set and watch him direct. You know, I wasn't beside him, I was sort of away at the side watching on a monitor. Um, and just watching him direct was just a, a kind of, um, you know, it was kind of proof of all the things I kind of understood to be true, but never experienced in, in person, that he is an artist when he's got that camera. And what he was doing, he was directing uh, from using it through a PA. So it was a, it was a scene in a tunnel, uh, uh, Orem and David, basically David's leading Orem towards the egg. 
Uh, it's a more extended sequence than what we see in the film. They're, they're having their ongoing debate about life and, and creation and God. And it's, this is one shot of them sort of walking and Oroman sort of strides off, leaving David in, in, in mid-shot. And just his kind of look comes across his face. You get the idea that something homicidal is going through through David's kind of artificial mind at that point. So it's good. It was quite a simple scene, but, you know, Scott just kind of, he, he just talked you through. He just was going right camera, left, down, down. And I stop, stop. And he would say, right, Michael, just take one step to the left. You're too close to the light. And you'd watch it on the monitor and Michael Fassbender would move to the left. And then suddenly this, this perfect frame would emerge. The balance of, of people within it and the, where the light fell kind of dripping water then really would go kind of go right atmos and these guys would throw dust and all this kind of stuff into the frames he loves those things in the air the particles that the light catches and they all start and then he would you know be a, you know, he, uh, the guy with the paintbrush you know down left camera to the left camera to the left you just watch this shot happening it's just fantastic you can just see that final point where he's just ridley his camera and the film being you know creating that was just awesome to behold i bet and it's for you i mean obviously i don't really know you that well but it's maybe full circle you here you have your own life inspired by films inspired by movies it's led you to empire magazine you know doing alien vault all the coverage and here you on set which might with Ridley Scott as he directs what might be his final alien film. I mean, that's a very profound um, journey um, as, as someone like you who's a storyteller and uh, a, a an admirer of art and a, a, uh, a connoisseur of art. Like, I can't imagine... Um, I can't imagine being on set of an alien film with Ridley Scott. Like, that's like... That's the penultimate. It's, it's amazing, so... That's really great. I mean, I uh, let me just tell you, I was also a real geek because, you know, in the creature shop, you know, they had the kind of the, the alien models and the full size mm -hmm. one. And I went, can I touch it? You know, I said, am I allowed? And the guy was just laughing, the kind of head of the creature shop, go on then. And I, was, I just wanted awesome. to touch an alien, you know, it's like, yeah. know that I had done it. It's kind of quite rubbery, the kind of sensation. They had the kind of the metal teeth, so I could touch the metal teeth. That That's absolutely awesome. just a geek moment. It was just, I just have to touch one. That's awesome. Do you have anything that you want to say? Like, I mean, this goes out pr to a pretty huge audience. Um, I know that the book has just now been made available in the States. It's been available <laughs> in Canada and the UK for a while, or for a little bit. About a, about a month. It came out okay. at the beginning of October in the UK. It has, it's, the only reason is it has different, as I said, it, the publishers create the book and sell different rights to different countries, and they mm -hmm. have their own sort of release strategies when's the optimum time to release it but a lot of it's got to do with christmas and obviously this year a lot of it was affected by covid mm -hmm. and bookshops and availabilities and warehouses all that sort of came into play um so we had a month uh, between the uk release and the american release um i i, I suppose you know in the end you know i, I hope people will like it very much you know it, it was written with a great deal of passion um I think, you know, uh, he's kind of neglected a little bit in terms of film books. I think Ridley, there is the great Blade Agreed. Runner book. Agreed. There's obviously good books on Alien. There's a lot written about that side of it. But if his career as a whole, there isn't much, which is one of the reasons I wanted to do it. You know, I felt there was a, a gap there that needed to be filled. Um, you know, and hopefully I've, I've achieved something towards, you know, laying him down into history and, and sort of 
getting good writing on Ridley up there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've done my best to do that. Um, I have people, you know, just enjoy it, you know. Um, I presume you, they're all Alien fans out there and, and, and Blade Runner fans. And who, Blade who Runner to, fans. Yeah. And fans and of suppose, Ridley Scott's work, too, yeah, for sure. I suppose, you know, there are, as you said, two very big chapters in those two films. And there's obviously big chapters in Prometheus and Alien Covenant and Blade Runner 2049. But um, I hope you enjoy the rest of it. You know, it's 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 kind of connective tissue, the career. You know, Thelma Louise is a great story. The making of that is a great story. Um, Legend is a fascinating story. I love that movie. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, they, yeah, it's... And hopefully then what you ultimately want to do is get people just to go back to the films and mm-hmm. relive the films. And, mm-hmm. um, that's Which me, leads me to my last question. Um, yes. Do you have a favorite Ridley Scott film? Uh, I suppose, yeah, I don't particularly like doing favorites simply because... Um, totally. Yeah, it's, it's like music, isn't it? It's soundtrack of your life and you have a different mm-hmm. album for different mm-hmm. moods and, and different times and you have different films for those things. But if, you, uh, if you're gun to my head, it's Blade Runner, because I think I know that means the most to me, and I've gone back to it the most. You know, I love Alien, and I, I wrote Alien Vault, and I've written about it, and I think it's a, just a fabulous film that keeps showing me things every time I go back to it. But Blade Runner, as I said, I saw it when I was young, uh, probably about 10 or 11. Didn't really understand it. I, I, I pestered my mum into taking me, because um, I loved Han Solo and Star Wars, and I wanted to see the new Han Solo Star Wars science fiction film turned out to be completely you know different to star wars in a good way uh, but it stayed with me it haunted me there was something lovely about it and daunting about it and, I didn't, and i've gone back to it so many times and i can watch it i could watch it now and still adore it you know um you know, the name of your podcast you know attached it you know the orion the great roy batty valedictory you know the, the great speech he gives you know we used to quote that in the empire office to each other and just to appreciate it, you know, just loved the idea. Yeah, you know, it's like the idea that there are things, you know, in this world you people wouldn't believe beyond what we've already seen. We've watched this perfect Ridley Scott film, yet there are things that haunt it. You know, what is you know sea beam glittering, you know, of the Tannhauser Gate? What does it look like? And I hope never, no one ever portrays it, because I don't want them to get in the way of my dreams. You know. That's the, I always think that about Ridley Scott's films, his best films, they're kind of at the edge of it, they kind of bleed into a kind of dream world where your mind carries on. You know, that happened with Alien, that happened with Blade Runner. I think that's why he's an artist. You know, there's something beyond just the film. There's this whole other world that exists in. Yeah, he has successfully created mythology and that's hard oh, to totally, do. Yeah. Um, I think uh, that's something filmmakers struggle with. I think actually later in his career, he might struggle with that a little bit, but when it counted, when it mattered, the mythology of Alien, of Blade Runner, of Gladiator, of Thelma and Louise, they are all with us. Those stories are resonating in us today. They're informing who we are. Um, it, it's it's really something amazing. I wish you would do a, a Blade Runner vault book because <laughs> aside from uh, Future Noir, which was the amazing book by Paul Salmon, yeah. there is no Blade Runner coffee table book. There is no Blade Runner behind the scenes book. Nothing. There's nothing. Very the vault books are quite, according to the, a lot of what it comes down to again is practical things. Um, it's about picture rights and who owns them. Mm-hmm. And we, for a long time, we talked about doing an aliens vault. And it broke down simply because all the, the individual Marines had their own rights to their own image. Hmm. So it means you've got to pay everyone. Yeah. And cost wise, it just became too expensive to do. Um, and we, we did talk about Blade Runner at one point. 
And I think at that point, it hadn't been bought up by the guys who shot Blade Runner 2049, that studio. Alcon, that production. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Alcon. Uh, and at that point, it had numerous different people with different ownerships on it. You know, Ridley had something, and the old companies had something. Warner Brothers had a certain... Yorkins, you know, yeah. All, all that stuff. And it was just too complicated to try and get all the good stuff you want to put in a vault, but cleared. Um, but maybe with Alcom now, it's worthwhile. Maybe they, I think they've got it all now. And maybe they'll be up for that. I don't know. That'd be interesting. Good idea. <laughs> <laughs> well... Thank you, Ian, for coming on the show. I really Thank appreciate you. it. Uh, his book, Ridley Scott, A Retrospective, is available now through Amazon, through all the major outlets. You can probably go into a Barnes & Nobles and pick it up if you would like. Um, it's a very large book. Uh, there's a lot of photos. There's a lot of new information in there. Um, certainly a lot of official behind-the-scenes things from Blade Runner that haven't been in books before. It's sort of the first official blade runner behind the scenes even though it's just a bit of a chapter within it that that's out there so it's certainly worth purchasing um so go out and buy it and uh are you on any can people like are, are you working on, like what's your next project you're working on and what, ne- what can people project, watch out for uh i've got i'm working on a guillermo del toro book a bit smaller more of a kind of uh, monograph type book as so i've got a james cameron book that's been sort of moved to the back burner a little bit because avatars have all been delayed. It's all a bit of a COVID problem. You know, all these films have been delayed and pushed back and pushed back. And obviously you, when you publish books, you kind of respond a little bit to what directors are doing because obviously they'll be in the public eye more. So we were kind of working on doing James Cameron, a bit like Ridley Scott and doing it at the time with Avatar 2. So that's all got delayed a little bit, but giving me more time to write it, which is always a good thing. Uh, there's a couple of other little things sort of cooking inspiring it. and like everybody i've got other ideas you know i'd love mm-hmm. to write a book about film noir at mm-hmm. some point you know just mm-hmm. the history of film noir and it's a huge subject which blade runner is a part um so you know yeah th- th- there's things i'm doing i'm working on i'm keeping busy trapped on lockdown in, in the uk but i'm keeping busy yes yes well thank you sir so much thank you For more on Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast, please visit perfectorganism.com. Perfect Organism is available for listen or download through Podbean, iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and Spotify. If you'd like to support the show, please visit perfectorganism.com forward slash support. Thank you.